Good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I want to thank Michael for coming all the way to St. Louis to play the drums for us. Uh, for those that haven't been around a long time, Michael was on our worship team for many, many years, from high school through college, and then he moved away, took my granddaughters. Some trouble. But uh, he and his wife will be here tonight leading our singing time uh, as we sing Christmas carols and stuff for our Christmas Eve service. So don't, uh, don't forget that. You have to come. I mean, we lit four candles. You'll miss the last candle if you don't come. So that'd be, that'd be weird. So today is the fourth final Sunday of Advent, a time, we've said it many times, we'll say it again, to celebrate the coming of Christ. And if you've been with us over the past three weeks, uh, you know that the messages have focused on reasons why Jesus came. Twelve, when we finish, it'll be twelve reasons why Jesus came. Twelve reasons why, as the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Why did God the Son empty Himself, take the form of a servant, and become a man? That's the question we've been looking at and will continue to look at today. Each week, we had a main theme and then three reasons for Jesus coming to, uh, that are related to that theme. Plus, with each reason, uh, we also had an application for ourselves. In week one... So I'm going to do a little review, it should be quick. We saw that Jesus came to teach and to train. And the three points were Jesus came to be our example, and we are to follow His example. Jesus came to preach the gospel, and we are called to preach the gospel. Jesus came to make disciples, and we are called to make disciples. In week two, the theme was Jesus came to obey, and the three points were Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant, and we are under the new covenant. Jesus came to serve, and we are called to serve. These are not hard questions. Jesus came to do the Father's will, and we are called to do the Father's will. And then last week, we saw that Jesus came to reveal. Jesus came to reveal the heart, and we are to examine our hearts, good, Jesus came to reveal the truth, and we are called to seek and live by the truth. And finally, Jesus came to reveal the Father, and we are called, this is a little, maybe the hardest one, we are called to represent the Son, not Father. See, that's the tricky part. There's the tricky part. That's my fault. We are called to represent the Son to a lost world. And that's what I hope we do every Sunday here at, at Bridges. If, if people come who aren't familiar with Jesus Christ, we want to introduce Him to them. Now, as, as I've said throughout Advent, all these reasons for Jesus' coming are, are part of the final and, I think it's fair to say, the most important reason. And that's what we will focus on this week. Jesus came to save. Salvation was at the heart of His mission. All the other reasons for His coming are not separate, Instead, they're a necessary parts of what Christ accomplished to bring our salvation. Jesus came to teach how to be saved and train how to lead others 
into salvation. Jesus came to obey that He might fulfill that old covenant, becoming the perfect Lamb of God, the only one who is able to save and lead us into the new covenant. Jesus came to reveal our need for a Savior and the Father's provision of salvation. So now, on this final Sunday of Advent, we focus directly on the fact that Jesus came to save. And as in weeks past, we have three reasons for His coming and three responses to His coming. Now, this is so uh, so big that each of the reasons has two points, and each of the responses has two points. If you have notes, you'll notice there's lots of fill-in-the-blanks for you. Who loves to fill in the blanks? All right. Okay, the three people, you can do that. Okay. So first, or tenth, tenth reason, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 19, we read of Jesus' encounter with a a man named Zacchaeus. Have you heard of Zacchaeus? He was the chief tax collector, sort of the head of the IRS in Israel. Not a popular guy. Uh, Remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, if you know the song. But he was determined to see Jesus. If you want, put it as your homework, read uh, Luke chapter 19. But Zacchaeus was determined to see Jesus. And when he did, and when Jesus called him to him, uh, uh, Zacchaeus expressed his faith in Christ through repentance. I'm going to pay back all that I've cheated people out of. Jesus then proclaimed that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' household. And then in verse 10, following that proclamation in Luke 19, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Salvation has come to you, but Zacchaeus, I'm doing this in a big way. I've come to seek and save the lost. Jesus succinctly summarizes his reason for coming into our world. There are three simple and yet profound words for us to understand in in this verse. The first two words, seek and save, tell us exactly what Jesus came to do. And the third word, lost, tells us who he came to do it for. Let's look at these three words in turn. First, seek. Jesus came to seek. The word seek is is not a casual looking around. Uh, I don't know if anybody does this anymore, but it's not like browsing a bookstore. Have you ever browsed when just looking for something casually, looking in a bookstore for something to read? I guess we probably browse the internet looking for something to get in trouble with. I don't know. The word seek refers instead to a deliberate search. It involves effort. It involves striving to find what you're looking for. This is the kind of searching that implies that what the seeker is looking for is of great value. In Luke chapter 15, verses 7, 8, and 9, Jesus illustrates this kind of seeking with this parable. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Clearly, her lost coin was valuable to her. She made a great effort to find it, lighting a lamp, sweeping the house, seeking diligently, not stopping till the coin was found, rejoicing when it was found. That's the kind of seeking Jesus is talking about on a more personal level. Uh, one more personal 
illustration. Before Michael was 6'2", or 1, whatever he is, before he had a PhD in physics, before he could play guitar, all these wonderful things, he was a little kind of bratty kid. And so, I'll just tell you a little bit about Michael. Uh, when my son Michael was little, he had a habit of wandering off. I remember one uh, Christmas, we were shopping, Christine and I were shopping at uh, the Walmart, of course. We turned around and Michael was gone. This is before he could shop online. Now, this was not a new experience for us. Uh, it was kind of normal for Michael. So we sprang into immediate action. I hustled to the front door just in case someone was trying to abduct our son. Not that that was likely, but, you know, you still cover your bases. And Christina began to search diligently for him, calling his name, looking up and down the aisles, asking people if they'd seen a little blonde boy wandering around. And she eventually found him. He was hiding in one of the clothes racks. Now, I won't tell you what happened to Michael. Uh, that's a different illustration. The point is, as parents, our children are extremely valuable to us. We would do whatever it takes to find them if they were lost. We would seek with everything we have. In the same way, Jesus came to seek. But not for the purpose of finding alone. Jesus came to seek for the purpose of saving. That's our second word. Jesus came to save. Again, this is at the heart of his mission. This is the why behind Christmas. Remember uh, Simeon from last week. He prophesied that Jesus would reveal the hearts of many. Well, before that, when he first laid eyes on the baby Jesus, probably about 40 days old at this point, Mary and Joseph taking him to the temple, Simeon didn't merely see a child. He says, for my eyes have seen your God's salvation. He's speaking to God. My eyes have seen your salvation, Lord, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Simeon saw this baby and he understood that he was the Savior. Jesus was the one who had come to save uh, both Jews and Gentiles. That covers everybody. You're either a Jew, at least from this perspective, you're a Jew or a Gentile. Gentile sort of means non-Jew. And in our next two points, we'll look at what Jesus came to save us from and save us to. But the fact that Jesus came to save means that people needed saving. This wasn't just some whim. It was a need. And that brings us to our third word, lost. People needed saving because they were lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what does it mean to be lost? You know, we've talked about a lost coin and a lost Michael. Being lost means you are not where you're supposed to be and you don't know how to get there. I remember our first Christmas in Thailand. We were studying the Thai language, we hadn't been there very long, in a, a little city called Lopuri, about uh, one and a half hours drive north of Bangkok. And since I had stupidly got an international driver's license before I got there, several of the missionaries asked if I would drive a group into Bangkok 
for Christmas shopping. If you've ever driven in Bangkok, how many have driven in Bangkok? Okay, never mind. Or uh, there are lots of places like it, but uh, I've driven in New York and uh, other places in the st- L.A., the, it's nothing compared to Bangkok, just say it. And so being an idiot, I agreed to do this. Now this was pre-GPS, uh, no Google Maps, so I got written directions to, to one of the malls in Bangkok, actually close to the north side. I wasn't going to go through the city even, just the north side of Bangkok. And we actually had no trouble getting there. However, I didn't know that in Bangkok, you needed directions both ways, coming and going. There were so many one-way streets, you couldn't just trace your way back. You couldn't just go back the same way you'd come. And so I got extremely lost. And don't forget, I was new to Thailand and couldn't uh, read the street signs. Not that I could years later either, but just saying. It was terrible. We drove around and around, not sure even uh, if we were going in the right direction. But eventually, after stopping a few times, uh, giving in to my pride was no problem. I was uh, afraid at this point. Uh, and in my limited tie, asking for directions, I somehow got us back to Lopari. So that's an illustration of being lost. I'm sure many of us have experienced such a thing. I was not where I was supposed to be, and I didn't know how to get there. I was lost physically. But the Bible teaches that since the fall, since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, man, humanity, has been lost spiritually. We all share that common bond uh, of spiritual lostness. Either we are lost currently, or we were at one time lost, no exceptions. And remember, the definition of loss includes two things. First, you are not where you're supposed to be. Man was created to be in relationship with God, created in the image of God. We were designed to love Him and be loved by Him. Any man, woman, or child that's not in relationship with God is not where they're supposed to be. This means they're lost. The second thing uh, being lost means is that you don't know how to get where you're supposed to be. If we're supposed to be in relationship with God, then we need to find out how to get there. When we're physically lost, we need two things. We need information and transportation. Information like a good map, GPS, someone giving directions. Today we all just whip out the phone and there's Apple Maps, Google Maps. We need information. And we also need transportation, a vehicle, a way to get there. Even our legs can be transportation if it's not too far away. The same thing is true when we're lost spiritually. We need information and we need transportation. God's Word provides the information we need. Its purpose, among other things, is to provide us with a a roadmap to relationship with God. We'll look at what that roadmap is shortly. But we also need transportation. We need a way to get where we're supposed to be. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ Himself is our transportation. He's the only way to relationship with the Father. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave them. He's preparing them for uh, his crucifixion and his eventual ascension into heaven. He's going to, when he leaves, he's going to prepare a place for them. 
but he'll come again and he'll, he'll, he'll call them and he'll take them to that place that he's preparing. He also says that they know the way to where he's going. But Thomas bluntly says in verse 5 of John chapter 14, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas was honest. He didn't know where Jesus was going or the way to get there. And then Jesus makes it clear. Yes, Thomas, you do know the way because you know me. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way, the, the, the only transportation, if you will, to eternal life, to the presence of the Father. There is no other way. Some might think that if, if you're lost, all you need is some good directions. All you need is this road map, like, like I received when I was in Bangkok. But a better illustration of our spiritual lostness would be someone, uh, someone hiking in the snow. They lose their way. They can't find the path. It's cold and late and getting dark. Then to make matters worse, they fall in a hole and break their leg. They're not where they're supposed to be. They don't know how to get there. And even if they did have a GPS, they have no transportation. No vehicle, no leg even. They need someone to rescue them. They need a savior. That's how lost we were when Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and save that which is, was lost. When we understand these three words, when we understand that we are lost without the ability to say, rescue ourselves, to find ourselves, that uh, bumper sticker again, I found it, speaking of Jesus, not valid. You can't do it. He finds you. And when we understand that Jesus came to seek us and save us, that he's the only search and rescue team that God has provided, then we have a choice to make. How will we react to this information? And we have two choices. Our response is either pride or humility. In James chapter 4, verse 6, we read, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Before Google Maps, when people, or should I say men, got lost, they were often hesitant to get directions. There's even a commercial now that's this guy, and if you've seen it, and he's, the Google's giving him the direction, I don't need, you know, I'm going my way. You know, why is that? Because pride. We've got our pride, right? An unwillingness even to admit, our, no, I'm not lost. Scripture makes it very clear that man is spiritually lost beyond his ability to find his own way. And unfortunately, men and women are all, off, are all too often unwilling to admit their lostness. I'm okay. James says that God opposes the proud. God opposes those who say they can do it on their own. God opposes those who are not willing to admit their sin. God opposes those who are not willing to say, I'm horribly lost. I cannot find my way. I have no ability to reach God. I need a Savior. But God gives grace to the humble. Simply defined, grace is receiving something positive that you don't deserve. So why does God give grace, something that is not deserved, to the humble and apparently withhold it from the proud? 
Well, I don't think there's a more logical statement in all of Scripture. What does it mean to be humble? It means an ability to view your circumstances as they truly are and live, admit them. An ability to admit your sin. An ability to cry out, I'm lost. I need a Savior. God does not give grace to the proud because they would never ask for it and wouldn't receive it. God gives grace to the humble because the humble know they need it. And therefore they ask for it. They know without the grace of God they're doomed. So true Christianity teaches that salvation is only for the humble. The prideful need not apply. Now every other religion in the world, and and I say this with a lot of thought, I've thought about this many times, every other religion in the world. I've, in fact, said this the other night to a, a young man, and he said, yeah, uh, he's of another religion. I will mention what it was. He is, yeah, that's exactly right, but I'm good with my way. Let me finish, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Every other religion in the world except, and I'm going to say biblical Christianity, and that'll be clear in a minute, appeals to the pride of man. Religions give us uh, people tasks to accomplish, rules to follow, rituals to complete. If you can accomplish the task, if you can follow the rule or the rules, complete the rituals, then you will find favor with the God or the gods. And he or she or they will reward you by doing what you're trying to earn, doing what you want. If I can do this or that, then I deserve heaven, I deserve paradise, I deserve nirvana, I deserve to be reincarnated as a better person, a higher form. And this is a direct appeal to man's pride. It's all about me and what I can accomplish. And if you're okay with that, stick with one of those. Because biblical Christianity is different. It says... I say biblical Christianity because there are all kinds of churches and groups and denominations, even maybe people who uh, treat Christianity just like any other religion. It's just a set of rules, tasks, and rituals. But the Bible has something very different to say. We find it throughout Scripture, but I think it's best summarized in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he writes, For by grace... You've been saved. You've been rescued through faith. And this is not your own doing. In fact, I'm adding a few words, by the way. You see the Paul's words there. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not about you. We're not saved by what we do or do not do. We are saved by the grace, the free gift of God. We have a part to play. It's called faith, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But there's no reason for boasting. You must maintain an attitude of humility. Because even your faith, even that, if you want to call it your part, is a gift from God. You would have no faith unless God gave it to you as a gift. There's no place for pride for the one who is completely lost and did nothing to acquire his own salvation. 
So our response to Jesus, who came to seek and save us when we were lost, must be humility. A willingness to admit our spiritual lostness. This is the first step to understanding and accepting the salvation Jesus came to bring. But maybe you like being lost. Maybe you're okay with where you are. Uh, or, you know, I don't feel lost. What are, you, what are you saying I'm lost for? I don't feel like I need to be rescued. I don't need to be saved. Well, maybe that's because you, don't, you still don't understand what it means to be spiritually lost. Being lost spiritually not only means you're not where you're supposed to be and you don't know how to get there, it also means whether you realize it or not, you are not in a good place. The Bible says that the lost are slaves to their own sin and destined for eternal death, eternal separation from God who created them. But there's great news. Jesus came to save us from sin and death. That's our uh, next point, number 11. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, we read, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. John says, Jesus appeared. Well, I mean, and we know the story. It was the virgin birth, the angel's announcement. We'll read that story tonight. I know we haven't read it quite in its entirety, even throughout our Advent. We'll read it tonight, come. But that's what we celebrate every December 25th. And we should not only celebrate His coming, His appearance, but rejoice in His reason for coming. He came to save us from, uh, from our sin, to take away our sin. The Greek word for sin is harmatia. It originally mean, meant to miss the mark, to fall short, to fail, to not measure up to the standard. In the New Testament, it came to be the word used for any act that was contrary to the commands of God to miss God's mark of holy perfection. Now, I think one of the problems in the church these days is we avoid uh, talking about sin, or we redefine sin. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable, so we call it something different. We don't want people to think we're the guys that walk around with the signboards, repent, the end is near, you sinners. So we call it something different, right? Errors, mistakes, bad judgment, misunderstandings. But the Bible is clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's glory, His holy standard. And His holy standard, by the way, in case you're unaware, is perfection. No one meets it. No one lives up to that standard. No one except Christ. But the fact that we've all sinned leads to another problem. We not only avoid or redefine sin, we uh, can tend to normalize it. What do I mean by that? If sin is something everyone does, right? The Bible says it right there, for all have sinned. It can't be so bad, right? I mean, Gandhi sinned, right? I mean, he's a great guy. Yes, I'm a sinner, but not so bad a sinner that I, that I can't go to heaven by being reasonably good. I mean, God doesn't, God's got to let someone in, right? Why not me? What if I, I do more good than sin, don't I? I mean, what about him? What about her? 
It reminds me of the story of the two guys who encounter a bear in the forest. One guy starts putting on his running shoes. The other guy looks at him and says, why are you doing that? You'll never outrun the bear. And the other guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. (laughs) We somehow have gotten the idea that God is in the business of comparing us with one another. And, you know, in this room, as I look around, I'm doing pretty good compared to some. No, just kidding. I'm I'm not. In college, I had a class uh, called number theory. I was a math major. I actually graduated at a degree which is hard to believe after I tell you this. It was by far the most difficult class I ever took. Every test I took, I scored in the 30s or 40s out of 100. That is normally an F. But I got a B- minus in the class. How? Uh, The professor graded on a curve. Hallelujah for curves. He had to, otherwise almost everyone would have failed. And when it comes to God and sin, we can think we're in competition with the rest of humanity. As long as I'm better than most people, some people, God will have to let me into heaven. I mean, compared to him or her, or especially we always, as compared to Hitler, I'm awesome, right? I mean, he's like the ultimate evil, so I'm better than him. But I beg you. to get that kind of thinking out of your head. God does not grade on a curve. He's not about comparing us to one another. You know what he's about comparing us to? Jesus himself. The Bible teaches, the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, any sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, what you and I earn, what we in fact deserve, what we get when we sin, is death. Death here refers not only to physical death, but eternal death, eternal separation from God. And yes, I'll say the other word uh, besides sin that Christians often Uh, try to avoid, and that is hell. Let's use them together. Our sin earns us a one-way ticket to hell. So if God does not grade on a curve, if our sin, any sin, results in death, eternal separation from God, hell, what hope do we have? It's clear we, we can have no hope in ourselves, for as we've seen so far, we are lost and we're sinners. But there is hope. Hope that arrived that Christmas morn so long ago. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. John says, Jesus appeared to take away our sins. Paul says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to save us from sin and death. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. As John said, in Him is no sin. And then he died in our place. He took our punishment. The wrath of God was upon him, fulfilling the law for us. Our sin did result in death, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our place, he took our sin upon himself, that we might have the opportunity for life. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 
For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin. He took on our sin. He was, as John the Baptist declared, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be righteous and holy and set free from our sin, that we might be saved from sin and death. So what must our response be? Our response is either to rebel or repent. You have a choice to make. One choice is to rebel. To rebel against the truth that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you from sin and death. Rebellion can be both passive and aggressive. Aggressive rebellion takes the form of uh, verbal unbelief. I don't believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and therefore I do not accept his offer of salvation. I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, and therefore I do not accept his offer of salvation. Aggressive rebellion does not acknowledge the truth of your own lostness, your sinful state, or Christ's provision of salvation. I don't believe in that. But you can also rebel passively. Passive rebellion just ignores the truth. It lives its life as it always has. There's no change. It may say words, it may come to church, it may even read a Bible, but there's no change. Does nothing with what Christ offers with Christ's offer of salvation. Passive rebellion does not apply the truth of their own lostness, their sinful state, or Christ's provision of salvation. That's the rebellion, really, that, that most people choose. And whether our rebellion is passive or aggressive, it leads to the same place. Uh, death. Separation from God for all eternity. But there's another option to rebellion. I would recommend it. And it's repentance. In Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is speaking to a crowd about salvation through Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. We often think of repentance as an outward act of obedience. Someone might say, I'm going to repent of that terrible sin. And what they mean is they're going to try their best to stop doing that sin, whatever it is. But repentance means more than an outward stoppage of sinful acts. The word repent means to change your direction, to change your mind, to change your purpose. It's an internal, it's a heart word. Repentance is an inward attitude that results in outward actions. Some would say that you don't need to repent to be saved. All you need is faith. But as we saw last week, Faith apart from works is dead, James says. Faith that is not accompanied by works of repentance, turning from your sin, turning to Christ, is not faith at all. It's dead. Therefore, true faith will always be accompanied by works of repentance. Because repentance, the inward attitude, is part and parcel of, it's connected to, it's with, it's within the definition of true faith. And it's the only correct response to the truth that Jesus saved us from our sins. How else would you respond? Jesus went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world, your sins and mine. It's because of Christ's sacrifice that salvation is even available at all. 
It's because of the grace of God that you're saved from your sin. Our response to that must be faith that includes a change of direction, mind, purpose. Our response must be repentance. So Jesus came to save us from sin and death. And we must choose to rebel against that or to repent and turn to Him. But Jesus not only uh, came to save us from something, there's a two to that repentance. We repent of our sins, we turn away from our sins, and we turn to Christ. He came to save us to something. Jesus came to save us to, uh, to give us life and love. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus famously says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came that we might experience the abundant life. And that doesn't mean health and wealth and power and fame. In 1 John 4, 9, the apostle writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. The abundant life is life through Christ, in Him, Christ indwelling you. Yes, Jesus came to save us from, our, from sin and death. Yes, through Christ we can escape eternal death and hell. But we also, He also saved us to something. It's amazing, right? I mean, it would be good enough if Jesus just came, so we're destined for eternal hell, and He saved us, and now we just die, and we don't, you know, we, nothing would be great compared to hell. But he took, it, he took it all the way. We're saved to a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A relationship that will last throughout eternity. That is, in fact, the definition of the abundant life. It begins here. It doesn't start when you die. It begins when you enter into a relationship with, with Christ. To go back to our earlier illustration of the man in the hole with the broken leg, you remember him? He got, he got rescued from the hole. He was saved from death. And that was the end of our illustration. But suppose the rescuers had taken the man out of the hole and then brought him home, caring for his wounds, nursing him back to health, and making him part of their family. Entering into a loving relationship with him. That's the salvation that Jesus wants to provide for you. He not only rescues us from our sinful holes... He takes us into His home. We become part of His family. The Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God, through Christ, is pleased to make us part of His family to adopt us, to uh, graft us in in another place, it says. God is pleased to enter into a loving relationship with each one of us. It's His will. It's what He desires. Why? Well, because we're kind of cool, right? And He wants to hang out with us. No. It's not because, I mean, remember Ephesians 2? There's nothing we can do, nothing to boast in. It's not because there's something great about you or me. It's only because of the love of God. We lit the candle 
This morning we read the verses as Jesus makes clear in the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Then verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Christmas is not about condemnation, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. It's about salvation. God loved each of us enough to send His one and only Son to earth. A Son who would humble Himself. He would be born in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? Well, we have kind of a picture. It's a feeding trough. I mean, picture an animal. I mean, we, have a, we put the little baby doll in there this morning because we're getting close to... It wasn't there until this morning. But uh, picture a little donkey with their snout in there. That's what it was used for. He came to live a life of love and service and sacrifice and ultimately to die a horrible death. I mean, it was horrible physically and then spiritually he experienced our sin was placed upon him. The wrath of God came upon him because of us. He sacrificed himself by death on a cross for you and me. He was rejected by the very men he had come to save. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to save. This is what God wanted. By the way, he didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. That's the next verse. That's what God wanted. That was God's will in Christ Jesus. The question is, what do you want? Each of us must decide what we'll do with God's offer of salvation. Each of us must decide what we'll do with Jesus Christ. Our response is either to reject or receive. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle John writes, He was in the world. This is in his prelude, his beginning. He opens his gospel with this. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There are only two options. Either we'll reject or receive Jesus Christ. Rejection is pretty easy to explain. John says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In the context, John is speaking of the Jewish people. Jesus came to them. He came as one of them. He came as their Messiah, Christ. But as a people, they did not receive him. They rejected him. They were okay with him for a while. Read the Gospels. When he was feeding the thousands, when he was doing the miracles... But when he made claims on their lives, when he asked for humility, when he called for repentance, when he made it clear that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom, but a kingdom of the heart, they did not receive him. They rejected him. But some did, but some did not reject him. Some received him. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ. I think it means to believe in His name. What is His name? That's who He is. That, it's not just the word, the name. It's, in that context, it's to believe who He is. His name, fortunately, was given by God to Him, and it describes who He is. The name Jesus, which is 
uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua means the Lord saves. To believe him means to believe that he and he alone is your savior. The word believe here is more than an, uh, just an intellectual understanding. The word believe here means to entrust, to put your trust in, to put your faith in. One of my favorite illustrations of what it means to truly believe, to truly have faith, goes like this. Have you ever heard of the guy who walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls? Many people watched him do it. To them, he asked, do you believe I can walk a tightrope across the falls? And they replied, yes, because they'd seen him do it. Then he pushed a wheelbarrow on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. When he completed the feat, he, he asked the onlookers, do you believe I can walk a, a, on a tightrope across a Niagara Falls pushing a wheelbarrow? To that, they replied unanimously, yes, because they had seen him do it. Finally, a, a friend of the tightwalk roper climbs into the wheelbarrow and the tightrope walker pushes him across the falls. Wow, what a daring feat. When they finished, the tightrope walker asked the crowd, do you believe I can walk a tightrope across the falls pushing a wheelbarrow with a person in it? To that they exclaimed, yes. For they were now believers in this guy's awesome abilities. Then he looked at the crowd and asked, Who's next? True belief, true faith gets in the wheelbarrow. We say we believe, but we're not willing to get in the wheelbarrow. We may believe in our heads that Jesus is the Savior, but we're not willing to, in humility, with repentance, entrust our lives to Him. And that's the only kind of belief He accepts, just so we're clear. A belief that says, I trust you with every aspect of my life. I give myself completely to you. I trust you not only to save me from sin and death, but I trust you to love me and guide me to a new, full, abundant life. That's the choice before us on this Christmas Sunday, to reject or receive. And receiving takes faith. Faith, which includes humility, a willingness to admit that you're lost, a willingness to admit that you have no ability to come to God on your own. Faith, that includes, as we've talked about, repentance, a change of mind and purpose, a willingness to say and believe that your way got you nowhere, a willingness to commit to no longer follow your way, but to change direction and follow God's way. Believing that Jesus is who He claimed to be, trusting that Christ's death on the cross saved you from your sin and death, Having faith that through Christ, God adopts you into his family. He loves you and gives you eternal life. So if you'd like to, in humility, with repentance, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you'd like to receive the salvation he offers, you can do that today. There's no magic words. There isn't even a specific prayer you need to recite. There's no special place you need to go. No posture you need to assume. All you need to do right where you're sitting is humbly believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to trust Him as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. So I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do, I'm going to uh, take a moment of silence 
for anyone who'd like to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. All you need to do is silently, in your own words, I'm not going to tell you what to say, in your own words, tell God that you're putting your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from, your, from sin and death and to save you to love and life. So if you'd bow, everybody could bow their heads, close their eyes, or not if you don't want to. No special posture. And I'm just going to give us a moment of silence before the Lord.